welcome to episode 27 of Radicals in Conversation, the monthly podcast from Pluto Press, one of the world's leading independent radical publishers. Happy New Year to everybody. It's lovely to be back in the studio again and to be starting the year as we mean to continue by hosting interesting conversations between people who are campaigning for social justice and radical alternatives to the status quo. And after the month we just had here in the UK with the general election, it's clear that there's going to be no shortage of battles in 2020. Today, we're going to be returning to a subject that we've talked about on this show in the past, because sadly, it hasn't stopped being relevant. That is the hostile environment, and specifically the impact of border controls in higher education. I'm Chris Brown, and joining me today are two members of Unis Resist Border Controls, a national campaign made up of British, EU, non-EU and migrant students, lecturers and university workers opposed to the Home Office surveillance and border controls on UK campuses. So I'd like to welcome Sanaz Raji and Quiva Madal McGuinness. Thanks very much for coming on and taking the time out of your days. So firstly, when was Unis Resist Border Controls uh, set up and what was its establishment in response to? Unis Resist Border Controls actually comes through my own struggle uh, when I was a PhD student at the University of Leeds. I started actually at the University of Leeds in October of 2009. I was given a three-year fully funded scholarship by the university. And as an international student, as a non-EU national student, I really encountered a lot of problems when I was there at the University of Leeds. I was supposed to be granted a, a specific supervisor for my project, and that sort of fell apart. And then I was given somebody else, and the person I'd been given to supervise my project really didn't have the knowledge I needed. Uh, and I made this known to the department three months into my PhD. And I was basically told by the research postgraduate tutor that I wasn't being grateful enough as a PhD student and I should just sort of plop my head down and just sort of do as I was told and that's that. And in a way, I think my experience as a PhD student then 10 years ago hasn't really changed and there's been a lot of problems in this type of mentality that anyone who is a person of color and now, of course, if you're a migrant and a person of color, you should just sort of keep silent about any problems and just sort of do as you're told and be grateful. And if you're not being grateful, then you're obviously a problem to the institution, to the department or whatever else. And as a result of this, I began to encounter increased levels of bullying in the department because they sort of now saw me as a troublemaker because I had said something and I wasn't happy with my supervision. And that sort of pegged me as this problematic figure in the department. And of course, I was being ostracized and I could feel it in many different ways. I was in a scholarship program and there was another person who was in the same scholarship program. And there was such a night day difference in terms of the treatment both of us received, mm. whereas I was being victimized because I had spoken out about some of the problems of my supervision and, and specifically that I wasn't satisfied and I wanted to find somebody else to supervise my project and being constitutive as not being grateful and somebody else having given everything and then some, which um, says everything about the system in higher education today. And I think there was an article just recently in the Times Higher Education about how increased levels of bullying and victimization and stress has produced a lot of stress, that people who go into higher education come out with mental health issues, and we've all sort of heard cases of people in those situations. But I don't want to go specifically go into this real long discussion about what happened, but um, effectively I was being bullied, and that increased in the second year because I made it known that I wasn't happy again, and I tried very hard to get a change of supervisors. Things that actually were written in the postgraduate research handbook, mm, but right. were being completely flouted by the department. 
And then I had an accident. This was a health issue. I broke my right ankle and I was asking for some time off and I was not granted that. Basically, the department began to say, well, you really haven't done a lot of work on your PhD, so we're going to say that you just aren't doing enough work on your PhD, when in fact, during that time, I was unwell, and so I couldn't keep up with everything, and I had to stop teaching. I was a teaching assistant. That was part of the conditions of my scholarship at the time. And again, um, this type of victimization began to um, sort of increase. Uh, And then at the third year of my studies, the department decided to pull my research funding. And they said, well, this was actually a week before enrollment. They said, well, we're not going to fund you for the third year. Hmm. But we still want you to finish your PhD. You'll just have to find alternative levels of funding. And this was done, I think, again, one week before um, enrollment for the 2011-2012 academic year. And, And I said to the department, well, you're telling me that you want me to finish. You say you want me to finish within three years' time, but you just pulled my funding. So how am I going to finish my PhD? And I, I fell into a deep depression. I didn't know what to do. I, I went to the student's office and I asked them well, what sort of things I ought to be thinking about. And I think one person said to me, well, maybe you should just go home. There's really no point in fighting this. And so this was the idea that there's nothing left for you. You should just go home, you yeah. know, even though clearly my status as an international student and the scholarship I was under was being weaponized in order to discipline me in, in certain ways. And I decided to fight. And I realized in that fight there really weren't many provisions, um, many areas of support for people in my situation. And, and I went to the UCU, which is University College Union. It's a union for lecturers, and I think also students who also teach, and of course, casualized members of staff. And again, when I went to the UCU rep, I was basically told, well, it's your word against the university or your word against the department, so we really don't know who to support. And and I was sort of left with no tangible level of support from UCU. And the same is true with the NUS, um, mm-hmm. National Union of Students. After this, I realized, well, I'm not, not only a situation where I can't finish my studies because my scholarship has been taken away, but this has also led to my status as an international student being weaponized because uh, I've got very few rights as a non-EU person to take on and challenge an institution for this um, egregious wrongdoing. So I was sort of left in this state, and that put me in a situation of housing precarity, of course, my immigration um, it's still not been resolved. Mm. And I began to speak to the people. And, and then I think it was definitely at a meeting fighting against casualization in education, which was in November of 2015. It was their second national conference, which was at UCL. I was sort of given a platform to talk about what had happened to me, but also how specifically non-EU research students were being weaponized in these ways. And and I began to think, well, there is an avenue that we, we should be talking about, um, specifically these type of cases, but also more broadly in the in the discourse around um, immigration in general and specifically the hostile environment policy and how this is being used to limit uh, and disenfranchise not just, of course, students and staff at universities, but just all migrants. And so this is how it sort of came about. We had our first meeting on the 5th of March, 2016. We're fast approaching our fourth year anniversary mm. at SOAS. And um, actually, it was at SOAS because it was one of the eight student unions that passed motions in solidarity with my campaign, Justice for Sanaa's campaign. Mm. And at this meeting, we decided to take this conversation on hostile environment to create a meaningful 
and sustainable discussion and action with other anti-racist migrant rights grassroots campaigners and groups around the situation concerning non-EU international students, academics, and university workers within a neoliberal university system. And so this is how basically unis versus border controls came about. Now, as a campaign, when we came together, and it was Quiva, myself, other individuals that came into the campaign, we were, it was a very small one, we about a few people, but we all sort of believed that there were problems within higher education and how immigration was being weaponized within higher education and border control specifically. So we, we established a manifesto, and basically mm. our manifesto advocates uh, for the following. So we are obviously a free movement campaign and free movement for everyone, not just EU people, but everyone. We also agree that there should be free education and that all migrants matter. I think in some of the discourses around um, immigration, there's this whole discussion around, well, I've made a contribution, so mm. therefore I should remain in the UK because I've done something. Yeah, the good oh, immigrant stuff. Yes, the good migrant, the model migrant sort of discourse. So we, we basically say all migrants matter, not just the ones who are white and are middle class or who have made a contribution. That's a very dangerous dis- discussion. I think we'll go through in this conversation. We'll sort of unpack that a little bit more. Mm. Um, we demand an end to the migrant NHS surcharge. We should all have free health care no matter where we come from. And we shouldn't have healthcare be weaponized in this way. We demand an end to surveillance of students. And this includes, of course, the way the hostile environment sort of is doing surveillance on campus, but also prevent as well. If a migrant student or university staff member encounters immigration problems, we demand that student unions and the university provide pastoral care and legal support in resisting the de- detention and deportation of migrant students and staff. And that migrant students and university staff should be able to take legal recourse against their institution without their precarious immigration status being used against them in order to silence them from speaking and taking action against any wrongdoings by their institution. And the last and I think final but also really important is that we demand that universities stop working with and or investing in the arms trade, fossil fuels, prison and border industries that are responsible for creating war, environmental devastation and carceral violence that affects particularly working class, black and people of color. So these are some of the things as part of our philosophy as a group. Now, in the last four years, we've been doing workshops and educational outreach. We've sort of toured all over England, um, and we've gone to Scotland. We've we've had discussions with um, people, UCU uh, Glasgow and UCU Edinburgh, but also a lot of the migrant DIY spaces in those places. And again, we've done a lot of uh, educational outreach discussing what we know about the hostile environment in higher education, how it works, how it's practiced, and also ways in which we can combat these type of um, issues. Uh, but also, in addition to the educational outreach we've been doing for the last four years, we also do casework support. I think most people um, know about Ahmed Sadiq. He was a PhD student at the University of Sheffield, and we were able to campaign on his behalf and create a larger campaign in the Sheffield area for him. And of course, we do research. We'll be talking a little bit about the survey study we did in 2018 yeah. and also engage um, in protests and direct action. So this is some of the things we've been doing the last four years. Mm. It's interesting that you're talking about the hostile environment, but a lot of this stuff predates that. I mean, when we're talking about hostile environment, the thing that kind of Theresa May, her creation, if you will, but a lot of these policies, the border controls, that sort of stuff inside higher education, that predates that, doesn't it? Is it easy to identify exactly when this kind of surveillance uh, began or is it something that's been slowly growing over the years? 
You're right in the sense that it predates Theresa May's proclamation of creating a hostile environment. This was in 2012, trying to uh, get net migration statistics to fall um, specifically and to make the UK a very, quote unquote, hostile place for anyone who is, quote unquote, illegal. But again, we have to understand that it didn't happen just because of the coalition government or the conservative government's policy, but each political party has taken turns in relation to creating exit or racist policies. I look at it from the 60s. In in 1965, it was under a labor government um, that issued a time limit on student visas. And this was in order to reduce the number of, at the time, they called them overseas students, but we know them as international students um, in the UK. Two years later, in 1967, the government increased international student fees from 250 pounds. And this was, I think, Prior to that, it was 180 pounds. And basically, these increases meant that students who were coming from poor families and, you know, people that were coming from the global south were going to be hampered by being able to come to the UK. Mm. So it essentially favored wealthy and government-sponsored students. Then we get to the 70s. And right after the Labour government fell, it was the Conservative government. It was, you know, 1979. And they began to um, institute quotas on international student numbers. And proposing fee increases. And this provoked a lot of protest, and especially there were a number of tuition fee strikes that overseas students took part in. There was one particular case in University of Manchester where 150 overseas students took part in this tuition fee strike, and they basically withheld paying their tuition fees as a protest to these fee increases. And the way that these statistics, um, net migration statistics, were being manipulated to basically pander to anti-immigration sentiments. I mean, there's been a few cases, I guess, over the last few months that have particularly come to the attention of the media, and one of which relates to a Pluto author, Amber Murray, who published an excellent collection on Thomas Sankara with us last year called A Certain Amount of Madness. She's uh, based at Oxford University and has first-hand experience of the hostile environment in this context of higher education. Are you familiar with that story? And indeed, are there any other stories of other individuals that have been caught in this dragnet recently that are worth highlighting? Well, we've all seen what's happened to cases like uh, Dr. Farha Asani and um, other individuals. The types of things we've been seeing the last couple of years, of course, it's now affecting a lot of white, non-EU academics. They've sort of found themselves, especially coming from the States or coming from Canada or coming from Australia. Now they're finding themselves in the mix of the hostile environment. It's really interesting because I'll, I'll bring you this instance. I remember mm. five years ago, there was a student occupation, again, at the University of Manchester, and this was done to stop the university from creating this five-star hotel on campus and sort of neoliberalizing efforts to sort of make the university more um, attractive, basically, to high-profile international academics who can sort of fly in and fly out and teach these courses. And and there was an occupation, and then some lecturers began to take part. And then there was a discussion afterwards of how academics could actually support the occupation. And I went to one of the initial meetings. And at this meeting, um, everyone began talking about how neoliberal education systems were, you know, creating a lot of overworked academics and precarious academics, specifically those who are casualized. And there was another person, another academic in the audience who was from Egypt. And I sort of got up and I began to say, well, I think those are all issues that we need to think about, but also we need to think about how the hostile environment policy is being used and border control specifically in higher education and people who are non-EU and specifically people of color 
and black academics or students are being sort of under this prevailing uh, surveillance device because of the hostile environment. And it was an academic, a white academic from Australia who got up and said, I don't recognize any of that because I'm not EU. Well, if that's the case, it should surely be affecting me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I kept saying, well, it might, you know, that might happen, but we all should be in it together and we should be thinking about this. But she said, well, if it's not happening to me, then I don't think it's really that much of an issue. And wow, the person okay. from Egypt got up and said, but it's been happening to me for years. At the end, he kind of left early and I tried to find where he was and I went out the door and he was so angry. He goes, well, this is what I get all the time. I talk about these things and I'm consistently being told that these issues aren't important. Mm. But now, five years later, you're finding a whole group of these academics sort of surprised that, oh, well, it's happening to us, too. Mm. Yeah. There's that. And I also think perhaps thinking about migrant EU academics I keep on being surprised by colleagues who are absolutely clueless about anything regarding Tier 2, anything regarding the NHS surcharge that their colleagues have to pay, anything uh, about potential monitoring of staff because obviously the hostile environment, the Tier 2 visa is not the Tier 4 visa, which I will get back to, I think, because Mm. we need to also talk about the points-based system, which already exists, obviously. And then in a way, yes, it's happening to some US or Global North academics who are not uh, from the EU who are white. But also, in a way, with EU uh, lecturers, Brexit uh, has become this kind of obsession. Rightfully and wrongfully understands the anxiety at the same time. These people, you know, have a fast-track way of getting indefinite leave to remain. Most of them are white and privileged. They're not the homeless, rough sleepers from Eastern Europe who are getting deported. And the kind of amount of cluelessness is is quite shocking. You know, um, I get people being anxious about their mortgages. Will they have the right to own anything in Britain? after the Britain leaves the EU, whilst mm. not understanding that uh, their direct colleague has to pay a large sum of money every year to be able to access healthcare for free. There's also been this sort of weird distraction that Brexit, uh, which you would think would build solidarity, seems to in some parts have actually broken it down um, in terms of it's, oh, it's what's happening to me that's important. I wrote about this um, in Capital and Class, And the piece I wrote was um, thoughts from an anti-model migrant waiting through Brexit. (laughs) And and I basically said, in a nutshell, some of the things that Quiva has mentioned, that there was this overemphasis of Brexit and not looking at specifically the exeno-racist immigration system and joining in solidarity with other migrants. It seems that a lot of them were looking through Brexit, especially anti-Brexit campaign, through a very white Western European lens, while jettisoning, of course, EU citizens of color and... And not looking at, I think, Fortress Europe in specifically, that there's no discussion around that. So, again, you know, we all do give workshops, you know, Quiva, myself and anyone else from URBC. You know, you always get someone who says, what about Brexit? And you're like, well, <laughs> there is a, it's a, we need to think a little bit longer about um, why do we have Brexit? Well, we also have a huge history, a long history of exeno-racist policies in the UK. And Brexit just didn't come out of nowhere, but it came out of this. And so I think if we're not looking at it from this perspective, we, we fall short of understanding the situation and why Brexit has come about, hmm. essentially. Just to backpedal slightly, because we've sort of touched on it, but what specifically are lecturers or academics who are teaching being asked to do in relation to uh, the student body? 
So Sanaz brought us up to the 80s with mm. a history of, you know, fees and quotas on, on international students. But um, I, I think, and this is where there's a bizarre conflation of the hostile environment and the, the points-based visa system, which was uh, introduced by Gordon Brown's government on mm. the new Labour. Uh, so introduced the tier four visa in which higher education institutions become highly trusted sponsors in order to be able to attract international students. And obviously, due to the marketization of education, those fees are essentially necessary for universities to run. In order to retain the status of a highly trusted sponsor, an obligation would be that you are making sure that tier four students are actually attending in 2012, London Mesh kind of got into hot water for this, where they seemed to have registered students uh, badly. Mm-hmm. There was issues with attendance, etc. So they lost and I think now regained their highly trusted sponsor status. So it did actually affect the university. Mm-hmm. Another university that tried to vote, the UC branch of Goldsmiths voted against us. At the time, it was also still a new Labour government, said, if you do that, we will revoke your licence, meaning you will not be able to have international students anymore. So basically tying the university's hands uh, on this. However, the guidance on attendance is very, very vague, mm. meaning that depending on the institution, this is uh, comes out in our survey, but also is something that you know academics broadly know if they pay any attention, is that in some places it can be a paper register, in some places it's fully automated monitoring control with cards, Mm. in other places it's the in-between internet register, in other places it's check-in points that students have to go to, say, every week or every month to show their passport and say that they're at the university. So because it's so vague, there's a lot of different systems. Mm. What we have seen, especially since London Met, but I think also since the kind of hardening of the hostile environment, which happened in 2012, 2014, 2016, is that universities also kind of go above and beyond right. in a moment of panic. And it started with students, and it's also then we've seen this with Edinburgh uh, and attempts at Sussex and other places to also use kind of similar monitoring techniques for staff, which are absolutely absurd in terms of what academic labour entails. So this would be my answer in terms of what we are asked to do. Mm. It depends. Yeah, okay. It can depend within a university, between schools, departments, faculties. It's so vague, but I think in a way purposefully vague, because I guess it is a way to keep universities on their toes, Yeah, perhaps. I mean, perhaps this is a good time to talk about the survey, because that was one of the findings, I guess, from the survey you conducted last year. Yes. Can I just say this, I think, maybe just to create a timeline, because I think all of it can be quite confusing. Mm. So during Gordon Brown's administration, this was between 2008 to 2010, uh, this is when the points-based immigration system was rolled out. Everyone's probably heard at some stage or another that Boris Johnson's been talking about creating an Australian points-based immigration system, but we already have a points-based immigration system. People tend to forget about this, but this is, again, the Labour government that instituted this. Universities specifically had to open their doors to home office monitoring, and universities began to comply with this because they were worried. This is right you know, when a lot of the austerity politics began coming into play, and they were worried that this meant they would not be able to attract an international students into the UK who pay substantially a higher tuition fee than non-EU or EU students. So they wanted to keep international students coming in for this reason. 
Priva talked about um, Goldsmiths. UCU was one of the few UCUs that said, well, we won't comply with this. But, of course, many universities and many UCUs I don't think really understood, like, where this was going. UCU branches, I should specifically say. And then, of course, coalition government comes in and they institute the highly trusted sponsorship status in 2011. And then 2012, you get, you know, what happened at London Metropolitan University, which I think we need to think about why that happened there versus, let's say, any other institution, because Hmm. a lot of the institutions that have a higher proportion of international students tend to be, by and large, Russell Group institutions or Oxbridge schools. It's not um, London Metropolitan University per se, but they targeted London Metropolitan University because there's a very high percentage of black and people of color who study there and, and also people that come from migrant backgrounds. So it was politically targeted to, to mm. look at. I mean, I think if any Russell Group University had their HTS checked, I think they'd have been no better position than London Metropolitan University. So this was very political. I think it took six months for uh, London Metropolitan University to attain its HTS status. But that sent a shockwave to every university. They began to think, well, how do we show that we're in compliance So this became the big thing. And of course, this was, I think, also at the same time where a lot of the digital technology began being instrumented in various universities. So if you go into a university classroom and you see a little box, a little black box, well, students either have to swipe their card or press their card in or whatever. Um, This is one aspect. And, and, And a lot of them are specific lecture theaters where, let's say, it's business, and there's a lot of international students who go into business studies. Those are the classes that have these type of surveillance mechanisms in. Then we get to the hostile environment, we get to the coalition government's hostile environment policy, and then with the passing of the Immigration Acts of 2014 and 2016, you've got the conservative government, and all of this means further incursions in the university. I also forgot to mention that in 2012, this is a really pivotal year, uh, because it's when the postgraduate study work visa was um, eliminated. And that meant that if you were a non-EU international student, you had two years to work in the UK, and now that was taken away. Uh, I know that the Conservative government, maybe Quiva wants to talk about this, they were thinking about reinstalling the in fact, they've already yeah they, they, have, they already yeah. have um, so because what happened so international students from whichever degree level so from undergraduate to PhD could spend two years uh, on their tier four working and then in 2012 that was restricted also the number of hours was restricted and it was restricted to four months post study so with a PhD we would be four months after submission not after viva so people have to sort of come back for the viva that, that, that's a whole other problem but also for undergraduates. And the number of hours, which again, and this ties into casualized labor in universities, can also be very problematic for uh, tier four PhDs who teach and how much that can be used to kind of pay them less, uh, give them less hours, etc. Boris Johnson has decided to revoke this. So I think they are, I don't know if it's back to two years, but they certainly extended the post-study uh, visa time uh, because obviously the idea is then that people, if they find a graduate job, that, you know, it's easier within two years to get somebody to sponsor you for a tier two, obviously, which would be the work visa. But the underlying question is, why is the Conservative government suddenly doing this, which obviously ties mm. into Brexit, that, you know, uh, actually we do need those international students and we are making the UK less attractive mm. to study for for international students, especially international students who have more money, who come from more privileged backgrounds. And I think there's a statistic I saw 
earlier on today, actually, that I think Australia is now getting more international students than the UK, which okay, obviously wow. the UK always relied on its prestige. And this is obviously you can see that there, there are economic reasons, you know, that people it was more prestigious to study in the UK than it is in Australia because there's the old institutions. It's seen as kind of one of the homes of, you know, the traditional university. So there's clearly something underpinning this. And also, I'd say what is also underpinning this is that Brexit might attract less EU students. So it's okay. well, if there's going to be less EU students because Brexit is not making the UK an attractive place for Europeans, we do need to find ways of getting more students from elsewhere. Mm. If not, again, our universities are in trouble. We need their fees. And again, can I just say that's that's like a historical thing, because in the late 70s, um, when they decide to increase international student fees, this is 79, you had um, in the House of Lords um, various members talking about how this would make the UK unattractive. But, you know, this is during the uh, time of Cold War policies, how this might mean that a lot of students from Commonwealth countries will go and study in the Soviet Union and this would be bad for the prestige of the UK. And, of course, financially, that this wouldn't mean that they would lose capital. One thing that comes up when you search for unis resist border controls is um, you've got this hashtag borders kill knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So in addition to the trauma that these policies are inflicting on people caught in their web, there's clearly other detrimental impacts that border controls bring. If you could maybe tell us a little bit more about this idea that borders kill knowledge. There's two things that are kind of the most visible. One is the way in which researchers have been told to leave the country because they have been outside of the UK for more than 90 days within a year or 540 days over five years. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously a lot of researchers, depending what their specialism is, might need to spend more time outside of the UK. So you're an archaeologist, so I think, and this is somebody whose name I cannot remember, but she was studying archaeology in China. Archaeology is an extremely uh, time-consuming discipline. And, you know, you have to be very careful thinking about digs. You know, it's going to take you more than three months to sort of really do some proper academic research around the site. Yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, being told upon their return or when they're trying to extend their tier two visa or applying for in, uh, indefinite leave to remain, that instead of that, they have 30 days to leave the country or whatever because they haven't uh, satisfied the conditions of their um, tier two visa. Now, obviously, this means, again, that you have um, loads, as I am to talk about sort of model migrants, but, you know, if you're talking about universities being a college of specialists in their field, <laughs> but you're making it impossible for people to remain specialists in their field or, you know, you're, you're telling them actually your specialism means that you do not comply with visa rules, means that they go elsewhere. So this is one way, and I just want to flag up, so this is a case of a Japanese researcher, uh, Miwa Hirono, who's working, I think, on questions of peacekeeping and also international uh, relations and politics. And her job at the University of Nottingham, after the two first years of her employment, she had to engage in intensive research. And this was in 2010, before they implemented these additional tier two rules around work. But when she tried to renew her visa five years later, the Home Office told her that she was in breach of Home Office regulations in terms of her tier two, despite the fact that the time that she had spent outside of the country actually predated the time that these new rules came into into being. Right. So it's, you know, it's, it's dystopian. And, you know, and this is one way in which uh, borders clearly kill knowledge. They're keeping specialists uh, away if they don't happen to be uh, from the EU or from Britain. Mm. The other way I think maybe Sanaz wants to speak about this is conferences. 
Yes, conferences, yeah. specifically um, scholars from Africa, Asia, Latin America, the Middle East are sort of not allowed to come to the UK because of how immigration rules are and how um, incredibly draconian they've become the last couple of years. We bring up the example of the 2017 conference of the African Studies Association in the UK, where five scholars um, were invited to present at the University of Cambridge, who all secured the requisite documentation, but were denied entry by the Home Office. So that's one aspect. So that means that, you know, scholars who (laughs) are coming from the region are being denied the ability and the platform to speak. And that means that scholars who are white will end up taking up platforms and spaces where people from those regions are actively being denied the ability to speak. But more broadly, if we think about institutions and, of course, um, universities, we all know that of course, you know, University of Cambridge, University of Glasgow have all talked about their ties to um, colonialism, how the university has reaped massively because of colonialism, because of slavery, because of the wealth of empire. And borders are because of empires, because of colonialism. And again, you know, we need to think about it more broadly, like borders kill knowledge, but these universities have been built off of the deaths, um, the destruction because of colonialism. And and of course, if we're limiting people People from these areas to study, I think it's it's again part of this colonial project, and it's never ended. So, need to eradicate borders generally, mm. yeah. and eradicate these structures. Should we speak a little bit about the survey? Oh yes, yes yeah, yeah, I did ask. We, one I, I, yeah. Did, I sort of did sidetrack, and that's my apologies. There, our survey study was we put it out on the fifth of June, two thousand and eighteen, mm. and basic premises of the survey study is that we had been going off giving workshops at different locations all over the UK. And we kind of thought, well, it seems that we don't really know exactly what people do know. It seems we know that there is an information gap. We don't know exactly where it where it is. And we need to maybe ask a few questions to see what people know about the hostile environment, but more broadly, how it's affecting people on a variety of different levels, including, of course, um, vis-a-vis costs, but also how it might, it might be exacerbating racism on campus. And we need to know exactly what people do know about this and what people don't know. And we got 184 responses, and this was great. And I think I'm going to speak more specifically about the issue of how the hostile environment uh, has emboldened exoneracism, specifically around um, black and people of color who are non-EU in higher education. But um, we asked a variety of questions, and we do have our service study, and people can access it online at unisresistbordercontrols.org.uk. So... It's interesting because what we found um, specifically around international non-white students and staff is how the hostile environment has specifically meant that there's been more discrimination, increased institutional scrutiny, quote-unquote suspicion and condescension at the individual level, Hmm. differential pay, unfair performance standards, and retaliatory and escalating hostility in response to complaints. I want to bring up a couple of comments that we did get. For example, to the question of if you're an international student, you know, as a non-white international student, do you experience racism um, differently than white international students or, or white international staff? And one respondent from Edinburgh said, very much so, international non-white students are treated very poorly by white staff, including having 
competency questioned, racialized comments, discriminatory behavior, patronizing attitudes, monitoring of attendance, asked about English level competency, experience of discrimination ignored by white staff, every effort made to showcase international non-white students may breach visa roles. So that's one big response that we got. Um, Another one was a doctoral student um, at Westminster who said, yes, the university staff aren't accountable to us, especially when it comes to complaints. I was told by my doctoral coordinator to withdraw from university if I wasn't happy with the supervision I was receiving. Um, So again, in a way, this relates to some of my own experiences. But interestingly enough, and there was a whole series of responses that we got specifically around Chinese and East Asian students. Mm. And this was really interesting. So you have 106,000 Chinese students studying in the UK. Specifically around Chinese students, there was some of these comments from a lecturer at the University of York. They said, in my experience, Chinese students are sometimes treated more like numbers than individuals because they come in large numbers, especially on MA programs primarily aimed at them and primarily serving the purpose of a cash cow. Somebody at Lancaster University said, in terms of institutional dynamics, I feel non-white international students, particularly East Asian students, are treated in a cash cow manner as a revenue source and that insufficient resources are provided to support them in regards to language barrier issues by the university centrally. So again, like this whole notion of cash cow comes up repeatedly in some of these comments. Again, another lecturer at um, Glasgow says, I think a lot can be said how Chinese students are treated, again, like walking pots of money with inadequate support to both them and staff teaching them. So again, this whole notion of cash cow comes up repeatedly. Mm -hmm. So that's very interesting how people are using that language um, specifically in terms of the treatment of Chinese and East Asian students. Which also is from personal experience and experience of other uh, people currently working as lecturers who are part of unis versus border controls um, is so you know there's kind of clearly a lack of care. Whilst uh, meanwhile, all the monitoring that I have been asked to do in various institutions across London has always been couched in the discourse of pastoral care. Mm, okay. And this is the way for academics who haven't really paid attention to what's happening with the monitoring of students, uh, but do care about their students, and are being told attendance, whether it's entering it on an e-register or whether it's the uh, instalment of these card readers, which happened to me not that long ago, yeah. is presented as a benevolent act that on the one hand uh, might take away the burden of doing a register. <laughs> By which one might learn one student's names. I don't know. <laughs> could be nice. Yeah. Uh, and on the other uh, side, also presented as, you know, streamlining pastoral care. Now, I don't want to go into the kind of contradictions and pedagogical absurdities of this, but there is something kind of perverse and cynical in terms of how discourses around mental health uh, around students, not that much around staff, unless it's you're speaking to the UCU, which mm. is also a crisis. Uh, there is also, you know, overwork and, and so forth. But with students, we know that there's a crisis. We know that it's a crisis that's linked to marketization. We know it's mm. a crisis that's linked to the fact that, you know, students have to work much more. There's no more grants. You know, there's not the same amount of time to actually engage in one's studies. But that, you know, the solution to that is somehow to use that discourse that they're trying to do something about it to actually also use it to better monitor tier four students. Um, And additionally to that, and then we can see how international students are actually treated. So here in the case as cash cows, no support. 
Um, we can think of the NHS surcharge as well. So the cynicism of, of saying that you are enabling these technologies or these particular e-registers to support students when you're not recognizing that for students to access mental health in the first instance, if you're a tier four, you have to additionally pay. I mean, mm. also then get good luck accessing actual mental health services, whether you are tier four or not. In that case, yeah, if you can wait six months or in, longer, yeah. certain on-campus disability support services, which would sometimes uh, provide mental health, might also demand uh, that the NHS surcharge is, is paid, which is really cynical. How much uh, is the surcharge actually, or does that vary based on the visa? Uh, tier four is different to tier two. It was 200, 215. I think it's gone up to 400. Mm. It's designed to provide revenue. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, if you think about the home office and the visa fees in general, the home office profited about 500 million pounds. I was shocked when I read that. Yes. I shouldn't have been. but yeah. I, It didn't shock me because I've been going through this process. And again, like, for example, if I want to contact the home office regarding my case, I have to pay uh, over five pounds per email. And I just think it's madness. It's, it is madness. It's complete madness. It's, it's slightly cheaper for tier four. Yes. So it's 300 uh, per year for tier four and for tier five uh, work visa. And it is uh, 400 for everybody else. But there is discussions of, of raising that. I mean, we know all the, there's so many complexities around this and it should obviously be abolished. And we always stand in solidarity with Docs Not Cops, who's mm. you know, it's yeah. one of their, and Patients Not Passports, so the, you know, one of their uh, campaigning points. To see the, the cynicism around this uh, in which convincing us that somehow uh, it is the monitoring of students that is going to somehow support their mental health when there's less and less support services on campus mm. and uh, international students are asked to pay more whilst also... I mean, this is not empirical research, but we can imagine they're very, very far from home in a country that could be culturally very different. There can be the shock of that, the shock of being so far from one's family, especially with undergraduates. You know, it's not just the study and work, it's also the the general sorts of distance. And we learn that actually it's the exact opposite. Mm. Um, So, yeah, I mean, this is what I would say about this, which I think... uh, comes up in the survey, so this is not just my own experiences, various lecturers in the survey, when we ask them about monitoring, would mm. say, oh yes, we're asked to do this. I mean, they're quite conscious of it. Say, so we're asked to do this because it's for pastoral care. But at the same time, nobody knows where these registers go mm. or where this information goes. Yeah. yeah, I think this is one of the overarching things we mm. found in our survey study was that very few academics, members of staff, know how the hostile environment policy works in their institution. And we have to understand the hostile environment policy doesn't just affect non-EU students and, of course, university workers, such as what happened to SOAS Justice for Workers campaign in 2009 when many of the cleaning staff had been detained and deported, and it was actually through the collusion of SOAS management, but also in terms of those on who are Tier 2 academics who are also under same monitoring procedures as well. So it was really interesting that nearly half of the respondents did not know which department corresponded with the home office. Mm. So this suggests a much larger group of academics, um, even those who don't want to follow the hostile environment, are complying with these policies without knowing how they actually work. The the other main aspect, so I wouldn't say reassuring, but I'd say about half, is a bit over half of our respondents knew something about the tier four monitoring, mm-hmm. or even 70%. I can't, do you have the stats? Yeah. Our question was, does your university monitor international student members differently? About three quarters, so 73% said they, they, they knew they were monitored differently. So they were obviously more aware of the surveillance of international students than staff. Than staff. Mm. But then I think one other thing we've been seeing is that, for example, in the case of the University of Edinburgh in 2016, is that, you know, 
universities want to show that they're in complete compliance, including for you know non-EU staff members. So they're rolling out this type of monitoring procedures on staff for all staff, not just non-EU staff, but also EU and British staff. And I think it's part of this whole objective by universities to sort of universalize it as if, well, it, everyone has to follow it. So we're not discriminating on one body of people. Mm. Everyone has to do it. Although in reality, and this comes up in the survey, actually yeah. people say, as a tier two staff, I realize that actually I have way more check-in points and checked on much more regularly than any of my colleagues despite the fact that it is presented yes. as universal. Mm. In any case, it shouldn't be happening. I yeah. mean, but, you know, it was ridiculous kind of demands at Edinburgh, you know, that one needs to account where one is if you're not in your office or teaching, which, you know, academics work in libraries. Mm. Um, you know, again, we're thinking about research. The research means it's not the kind of work you're not always writing. You need to go to a particular library, a particular archive, conduct particular biological experiments, you know, and this kind of, you know, who's what, what are they going to do, come and check on you? Mm. <laughs> um, so, but really quite scary. And they've tried to implement it in other places where it's been successfully fought against. But I guess... This is the kind of way universities are trying to, you know, uh, universalize it. Also, I, I imagine to protect themselves in relationship to the Equalities Act, while still actually in practice mainly uh, focusing on tier two, probably mostly on non-white, so black and people of color, tier two uh, international staff. Yeah. You're going to ask us about the relationship between marketization and the hostile and environment, the environment yeah. and, and, and general immigration rules for students. I mean, I guess you've already sensed that this is absolutely entirely linked in our conversations. I don't think yeah. I need to address it clearly. Overseas fees, you know, because the government funds universities less than it used to, the, the fees from the students are needed. I think the advantage of the international fees as well is it doesn't cost the government anything because for the moment... We know that it's still essentially the government paying UK uh, citizens' fees uh, and EU citizens' fees. However, where it's going to get worse, I think, is that, uh, I don't know if you followed, that the uh, Britain has decided to remove itself from the Erasmus programme. Yeah, I did see that. Um, which is a, a, a programme which any European students, not just EU, Turkish students are involved. So, you know, it's quite a broad understanding of... European students can go and study for a year in each other's universities. So they've decided to pull out. Now, I think that what this signals is that they're going to eventually ask EU students to pay the same amount of fees as other non-EU students. And I think that's mm. just what I wanted to point to now as a, as a kind of acceleration of this marketization for anyone who doesn't happen to be a British citizen. Anything else from you, Senas? Well, I mean, as a campaign, we've always strive to make linkages with other activist groups. I mean, of course, we've mentioned Docs Not Cops, um, Against Borders for Children, the Anti-Raise Network, etc. And that, of course, the border controls that are we experience in higher education is part and parcel of a racist and xenophobic structure of immigration policy that goes back not just from the hostile environment policy, but back for, you know, decades. And we need to eradicate these type of uh, xenoracist systems. But of course, again, you know, we need to all link up and join up and not look for easy solution campaigns and quick fixes, but actually look at the actual core. It's the people that are the most oppressed. And we're talking about undocumented migrants, asylum seekers who um, will face this onslaught of continual violence. And we now know that, you know, with Boris Johnson in power, we'll definitely see this. Priti Patel has an incredibly fascist policy on immigration. So I don't expect things to improve. I think it will get a lot worse. But we need to all link arms and think about the most precarious migrants, and they will always be undocumented people. Yeah. So with that in mind, is there anything coming up 
in the calendar that people should be aware about or where can they get involved essentially? Okay, well, if you want to get involved in Unis versus Border Controls, and we would love to have more people to be involved, especially um, students and also academics and university workers, then contact us through our website, unisresistborderscontrols.org.uk. You can contact us on Twitter at Unis Not Borders and, of course, on Facebook as well. And I believe in 2020, I think we've been in, in contact with UCU and we would love to actually, with their help, produce a toolkit, especially for um, casework officers who encounter any type of immigration problems for staff and, you know, students who are members of UCU. And we'd like to also make more linkages with the National Union of Students. And that's something that we like to do the new year. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. All right. Well, thanks very much, Sanas and Kreefa, for coming in. Once again, URBC is on Facebook and Twitter. The website is unisresistborderscontrols.org.uk. So do check that out and get involved. Uh, For everybody listening, if you've enjoyed this episode, then do consider leaving us a review or sharing the link to the show. And you can go to plutobooks.com forward slash podcast reading for a curated list of books which are relevant to what we've been talking about today. And they're 50% off for our listeners, as always, with the coupon code podcast at the checkout. We'll be back in February for another episode of Radicals in Conversation. So until then, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.